Okay, there are two readings this evening. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 27. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. John's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, 
because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is God's word. Father God, in one sense, uh, the things this passage teaches are reasonably straightforward. And so our great need is not so much intellectual clarity tonight. Our great need is that you would enable us to believe what is written, that we might be born again, that we might be forgiven, that we might not be under wrath, but that we might know life and joy and peace. We long for those things, and so we pray for the work of your Spirit amongst us tonight. Amen. Now, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It is possibly the most famous verse in the Bible. Uh, You see it stuck up at football grounds. You'll see it at the World Cup, even though nobody knows what it means anymore. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, you came on the right night. This is the heart of the Christian faith. If you already trust in Jesus, you may be thinking, I could have had an early night. Don't reach for your smartphone. The temptation is we, we hear, oh, this is, yeah, this is, uh, this is about how people become Christians. This is, this is sort of basic Christianity 1.1. There's nothing really new for me here. I, I know this stuff. Well, a guy at the heart of this account thought exactly like that. Nicodemus was educated, he's religious, and he's confident. He knew his Bible better than anybody here, guaranteed. But he came to Jesus and found that the culture that he lived in, the things that just all his friends agreed, the things that the media would say and nobody would challenge because, well, we all know that, don't we? He found that his cultural assumptions had blinded him to the truth about God. And although he'd read the Bible again and again and again and again, He was very much in the dark about the light of God. This is something we're prone to in 21st century London. And it is very important that you and I come with Nicodemus and encounter Jesus and ask him to help us to hear the truth so that we might know his life. 
Okay, we've, uh, we've been in John's Gospel for a few weeks, and this is, uh, in one sense, hitting into John as we'll carry on. This is the first of, of John's big meetings with somebody. If you like, John is to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels. John is to the others what a chat show is to the nine o'clock news. Uh, probably not Graham Norton, um, but it's, it's, more, it's, it's a sort of extended getting to know you with Jesus, rather than just sort of punchy action, action, action. It's what would it be like to sit down and have a meal with Jesus and really get to know him? And the very first of these conversations, these encounters, in, in fact, the, the first recorded substantial conversation of any human being with Jesus Christ is this one, with Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader. Now, in one sense, what happens here, you could view it as uh, uh, Jesus effectively telling Nicodemus and us, look, if you're interviewing for entry into the kingdom of God, like a job, how do I get into God's people? What do you need for a job? Well, you've got to show that you have past performance and future prospects. That's what they're looking for. Past performance, your exam results, your previous experience. Does the stuff you've done qualify you for this? Future prospects. Does the sort of person that you are mean that you'd be worth us employing, worth us taking a punt on? And Jesus' answer is, I'm sorry, Nicodemus and every other human being in history, including all of us here tonight, but you're stuffed. On past performance and future prospects, you're stuffed. But wonderfully, he tells us that what we fail, God has fulfilled. And so he tells us that God can provide new birth from his spirit. And that sorts out our future prospects. And that God has sent his son to die. And that deals with our past performance. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at it. Um, verses 1 to 8. We need new birth from God's spirit. Verses one to two. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now the whole Pharisee project is about working out in detail how to live as people who are inside the kingdom of God. Working out in the minutiae of daily life how to be God's people, how you walked, how you dressed, how you cooked your food and decorated your house, everything. The aim was that if you did all this stuff, you would know I'm on the inside. Now Nicodemus is a leader of the Pharisees, but he comes to Jesus at night. John's subtle way of telling us, Hinting that for all his great religious qualifications, for all his strivings and devotions, Nicodemus is fundamentally ignorant about the central truths of God. Verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is not any society where there's justice and compassion, but it is the community of people ruled by God. It's not a culture we bring about, it's a people we join. And Jesus says to this man at the very heart of the Jewish religious establishment, Nicodemus, you want to form an opinion about me. You want to make a judgment to determine whether I'm on the inside or on the outside. The truth is, no one, no one can be on the inside of God's people. No one can enter God's kingdom unless they receive new birth from God. Not even you, Nicodemus. 
you think you're on the inside of the kingdom of God, looking out and making an assessment about whether to, to admit me like you're a bouncer. You're not. You're on the outside looking in. It's like Nicodemus wants to discuss with Jesus how accurate his A to Z of New York is. And Jesus says, hang on a second. You're in London and you haven't got a plane ticket, my friend. You're on the outside, Nicodemus. Now, you can understand uh, Nicodemus's rather exasperated reply in verse 4. He's used to people asking him, how do I get in? Not telling him, you're on the outside. And so he says, verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, verse 5, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There are two shocking truths for us to grasp in these verses. Uh, Two traps, actually, that we fall into as we come to look at Jesus Christ. First, lots of us, like Nicodemus, think that we are the ones making the judgment. Now, I don't think that uh, many of us would say, I'm a great religious expert, necessarily. But as enlightened Western liberals, we are very used to looking around at the rest of the world and historical statues and characters and forming a judgment on whether they are good or bad by whether they fit with us. Have you noticed how we do it all the time? We look at other nations and say uh, they're not behaving very well and we'll withhold aid unless they catch up with us. We look back at characters from history and say, well, we ought to rename this building because we don't like their behavior. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to, to rule on whether any of those individual instances are right or wrong. It's the assumption behind it, which is that morality is us. We're the ones who make moral decisions. We are the culture that's got it right. And so when we come to Jesus Christ, this great historical figure... We're tempted to think it's just like that. And we look at Jesus and think, what do I make of him? How does he stack up according to right and wrong? In other words, my assumptions. And the issue actually carries on even when we're Christians. We hear the Bible taught week by week. But we're so shaped by our culture that we find ourselves weighing what Jesus says and determining whether we'll obey him on whether it fits and sits with our culture. And if it doesn't, well, we'll debate it. We'll question it. We'll avoid it. And Jesus gently but firmly says to both groups, yet you're not in the judge's seat. I am. The Bible tells us what we think of Jesus Christ is very, very, very important. But it is not the most important thing in the world. Are you surprised to hear that? What you think of Jesus Christ is not the most important thing in the world. What he thinks of you. Oh, now that's the most important thing. Because he's the judge, not me and not you. Well, secondly, if that's a shock to us, that Jesus is the one making the judgments, the second shock, and perhaps the bigger slap in the face, is that these verses tell us that entry into God's people, God's kingdom, is not difficult, it's impossible. Now, I suspect in our more rational moments, most of us realize there is a gap between us and God. We realize he is a long way above us, if you like. 
And we assume, therefore, that only the best and most virtuous of humans can, can be part of God's people. You know, Hitler is out, Assad is out, Mother Teresa is in. Uh, and as for us, well, we kind of hope that if God catches us on a good day and we try really hard, we should just about make it. And that's how the Pharisees thought too, which is why they were so religious and so diligent and so disciplined. But Jesus slams the door on us and on them. Verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Slam. Verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You don't need to try really hard, Jesus says. You need a totally new life spiritual life from God and you can't produce it yourself look at verse 6 flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit you can no more produce spiritual life than a, a squirrel can give birth to a camel it's just different order of thing you can't do it Okay, why is it so important, though, that we, we are born again to be part of the, the people of God? Why does Jesus say this? What's behind it? What's driving it? It's tied to this issue. Why do you sin? Why do you do things that's wrong? Why do I do things that are wrong? Now, sins are, the, if you like, the stuff we do that's wrong, or the stuff that we fail to do that's right. That's sins. And we know God doesn't approve of sins, so we think, if I'm going to get into the kingdom of God, then I need to kind of cut down on the sins. And we should cut down on the sins. They're wicked, they're wrong, they dishonor God, and they damage other people. So we should cut down on sins. But Jesus' point here is, look, the problem runs a whole lot deeper than behavior. We commit sins because our hearts are sinful. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, if you want to join the kingdom of God, if you want to be part of God's people, you don't need a new leaf, a new opportunity. You need new roots, a new heart. Uh, Just near us is uh, Brompton Cemetery, which is one of my favorite parks in London, which may be slightly macabre, but it is very beautiful if you've not been, so don't judge me on, on the cemetery thing. I don't hang around it at night. I'm not weird, but it's very, very beautiful. And there's lots of famous uh, graves in it. Uh, There's Emily Pankhurst's grave, which is almost always, every time I've been there, there have been flowers laid um, by people who are just so grateful and want to celebrate the legacy of the woman who fought so hard to get uh, suffrage for women. At about 100 yards to the northeast of uh, Emily Pankhurst's tombstone is another one for a guy called Dr. John Snow. I've got a picture of him. Is he not magnificently Victorian? Uh, (laughs) I am genuinely just waiting for when uh, lamb chops like that become fashionable again. I can't wait. That's going to be magnificent. Um, Anyway, uh, the reason that he has quite an impressive grave in Brompton Cemetery is not because he was a, a fashion leader. It's because of the 1854 cholera outbreak in Soho. There were regular cholera outbreaks in the cities like London at that time. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people died. And there were all sorts of theories about why people were dying. Uh, One of the the main ones was the miasma theory, uh, which was a pretty reasonable one. If you think London's smelly and sweaty now on the tube, uh, London back then, you could pretty much see the air. And so they said, there's something, there's a miasma in the air which is making people ill. But John Snow uh, studied and worked, um, and he thought there was another, another thing going on. A number of people were trying to cure cholera. 
They thought if we can come up with a cure, a vaccine or something, if we can work out a cure cholera, we'll save lots of lives. But as John Snow did uh, detective work with working out where the outbreaks were happening, where people were dying, he realized that there was a pump in Broad Street in Soho. And the water was coming basically from just next to the sewage outlet was the water inlet for this pump. And he realized it was contaminated water that was killing people. And he realized you could treat the sickness... You could get the populace to be much more disciplined about their own hygiene, washing their hands and whatever. You could even seek to purify the water. But while the pump is contaminated with sewage, it is going to be producing cholera and death time and time again. And you see, you and I can work at cutting down our sins. We can seek to up our discipline. Those are good things to do. But the problem is, if my pump, my heart, is contaminated, then as hard as I try, I will always be pumping out filth and selfishness and wickedness and indifference to others. And so while some of us might commit fewer sins than others for all sorts of reasons, all of us share this problem of a contaminated pump. And so our our future prospects are not a good bet for God. Why would he want us in his kingdom pumping out filth and selfishness? We don't have great prospects. And so God should not let us into his kingdom. But the good news is what we lack the ability to change, God can change. In verse 5, Jesus says, being born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. He's picking up on that Old Testament passage that Thomas read for us from Ezekiel 36, where God promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. It is beyond our power to generate spiritual life, to change our hearts into hearts that that beat with a love for God and a love for other people. But in Ezekiel 36, God promised that one day, He would send his Holy Spirit to transform hearts, to cleanse us inside like the washing of water in our hearts and to give us a new heart that loves God and loves others. That new birth that's being talked about in John 3, it means a new spiritual life working from the inside out, not a new religious discipline working from the outside in, but a new spiritual life that starts here and works out. In 1904, there was, a, there was a massive revival in Wales. Uh, revival just meaning a whole heap of people, an unnatural number of people becoming Christians at the same time. Um, the gospel was preached by Evan Roberts and Evan Evans and other people with wonderfully Welsh names like that. And historians estimate 100,000 people in Wales were born again as they became Christians over the space of a year or so. Extraordinary event. It was such a big deal that uh, even the great newspapers of London couldn't ignore it. And eventually, um, a number of journalists were, were dispatched from London to, to Wales to find out what was going on. And there's a lovely story 
um, in the history of that revival that uh, one of the senior editors of, a, of one of the traditional London papers was uh, arrived in Cardiff train station, Cardiff Central, and he got off the, the first class carriage of the train and turned to the porter and said, my good man, I'm looking to find the revival. I was wondering, could you tell me where it is taking place? And he responded, right here inside my waistcoat. Beautiful. He says, yeah. He said, that's where it's happening. New birth has taken place in here. That's where it's going on. And Jesus has seen the powerful effects of this new birth, of this spiritual birth that brings change from the inside out. He talks about it in verses 7 to 8. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is making a very obvious point. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. You know what the biggest thing picked up by the wind is? In 1990, a tornado in Bakersfield, Texas, picked up an oil tank weighing 180,000 pounds. It picked it up and deposited it three miles away, 600 feet up a hill. That is quite impressive. Just the wind did that. You don't see any physical change when someone becomes a Christian. They don't get a sort of a holy glow or a halo like the medieval paintings. But the power of the Holy Spirit can pick up a life and utterly transform it. And Jesus said, I've seen the effects. And if you only had eyes, Nicodemus, you would see them too. The great Bishop J.C. Ryle explained this new birth by saying, it's the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. Those are the effects. Uh, at the revive weekend that a number of us have been on, uh, I, I bumped into a guy I haven't seen for um, a few months now, Alex, who um, 10 years ago was self-obsessed, very self-obsessed. Uh, he just lived, he spent half his time earning money because he wanted to be rich, that was his aim in life, and the other half his time in the gym because he wanted to be huge. He's got arms, I'd say like my legs, but that would be doing them a disservice. Uh, <laughs> they're kind of like my torso. Yeah. He does, he does individual bicep curls with 50 kilo weights. He is the dictionary definition of hench because he just, he lived for himself. He was utterly self-obsessed when you talk to him. But then he was born again and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And now his heart beats in a different way. He's given up everything. He's moved to a a rather dangerous area of the world to tell other people about Jesus. He's given up the prospect of marriage because it's a pretty dangerous sort of area. He's given up the prospect of making money because he doesn't care about that anymore. Instead, he's passionate about sharing the new life that Jesus has with as many people as he can so that they can know the freedom and the transformation and the joy which he knows. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have been born again. That means God has performed a miracle in you, an invisible miracle with visible effects. Religion can make you a better, a better version of yourself. But Jesus promises something far more radical, a new you. And if we're going to get into the kingdom of God, we need that. 
wonderfully Jesus says, oh, by my spirit, I'll make you the sort of person who fits into the kingdom of God. Not perfectly yet, it's an ongoing process, but a new you changing daily to be more and more the sort of person who loves God and loves others and will fit into my kingdom. That's the first and the longest thing. Uh, Secondly, we need the death of God's son. There's a lot of verses to get through, but we're going to deal with these relatively briefly. In verses 1 to 8, taught that to enter the kingdom of God, you need new life from God's spirit. 9 to 17, you need death, the death of God's son, which deals not with our future prospects, but with our past performance. Verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, I'm not quite sure what Nicodemus is struggling to get in verse 9, but Jesus' answer is clear. Look, Nicodemus, if you're struggling to get your head around the fact that humans need new birth and God does that by his Spirit, you're never going to grasp what I'm about to tell you, which is that God needs to send his Son to die on a cross. Now, you'll notice at this point, Jesus changes the dynamic of the conversation. Nicodemus arrives as the official representative. We know, he intones verse 2. Well, verse 11, Jesus responds in kind. Well, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. And Jesus' royal we comes with a little bit more weight. Because he is an eyewitness to the new birth he's spoken of. And he's also an eyewitness to the things of heaven itself. And with all that authority... He says, you cannot be part of God's people. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you look to, unless you trust in the death of God's son for your sins. So verses 14 to 15 are referring back to an incident in the book of Numbers. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Uh, God's people are on the way out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land and in between they basically grumble lots and disobey daily. That's their routine. And it's disgraceful. And God disciplines them to to turn them back to himself and he allows a, a plague of snakes to go into the camp, poisonous snakes, and people are getting bitten and dying. And so he tells Moses, put up a bronze snake on a pole and everybody who looks at the bronze snake will be saved. Now, the bronze snake had no magical powers whatsoever. It was a bronze snake. The point was to look at the bronze snake was an act of trust. You'd only do it if you just, God says do it. Okay, God said, I'll do it. It taught them that when you trust God, you're saved. The power was not in the snake. The snake saved nobody. Trust in God saved them. And Jesus says, like the bronze snake, he must be lifted up, verse 14. He'll be raised, uh, not on a a, a snake pole, but he'll be raised on a cross. And he will die to give eternal life. Which brings us to verse 16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. But it is full of truths that have been misunderstood in every age since Nicodemus. So what we're going to do is look at this verse, but we'll allow verses 17 to 36, but especially 17 to 21, to kind of inform it for us. 
rather as we did with the second half of chapter 2 in forming the first half last week. So, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So it may be seen plainly what they've done has been done in the sight of God. For God so loved the world. It begins with God's love. The odd thing is for the world. But we kind of think the world, oh, the beautiful creation of Attenborough's documentaries. He's not talking about that. Or the world as the the wonderful ethnic diversity of culture around this globe. He's not talking about that. It means humanity in our wicked, miserable, death-bringing rebellion against God, living for ourselves, using other people, abusing and exploiting the beautiful planet God's given us. And you see from verses 17 to 18, God's sending his son ought to be our condemnation. It ought to be the judge arriving to destroy us. So he has to tell us, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world. That's what you'd expect. Instead, he came to save Verse 19, the world rejected God when he came in the person of Jesus like cockroaches scurrying under the cupboards when you turn on the light. Not in my kitchen, I hasten to add. We recoiled from him because we don't want to be exposed. When the light of Jesus Christ appears, the ugliness of our behavior is exposed. God so loved the world, he sent his son to save the wicked that he gave his one and only son Verse 16, yet again this week, a church leader was in the news mocking the Bible's teaching about the cross. Uh, Steve Chalk, a Christian minister over in uh, the other side of London, for years has been saying the same things, but he was at it again this week, describing the idea that God the Father sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins as cosmic child abuse. God can just forgive. He doesn't need to punish sins. But he just doesn't know his Bible or his God, I'm afraid. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. The father and son, John tells you, and we'll see as we go on through John, especially in chapters 5 and 8, there is this wonderful, tight relationship between the father and son. God is a trinity, father, son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly united, one God, three persons. So when, when the Father sends the Son, it's not some random third party who's, who's being punished for our sins. It's God himself taking the punishment for our sin. God gave his own Son. He's in one sense God giving himself. That whoever believes in him. Well, how do we get the benefit of God giving up himself, his Son, to die for us? Well, by believing in Jesus. It's not that believing in Jesus is the one good work that makes up for everything else you do. It's the opposite. Believing in Jesus is to turn away from trusting in the stuff I do and to believe instead in what he has done, to believe that in his death he paid for every sin I will ever commit, past, present and future, to trust that he's done everything necessary in his death 
to pay for my past. So there is nothing left for me to do. Instead, I just need to trust in him, to look to him. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, now you understand why John the Baptist at the end of this passage is so delighted that people leave him to follow Jesus. Verses 22 to 30. He's happy for his, his star to fade, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and to say, he must become greater and I must become less because he knows it's not just a matter of religious preference. It's not just trading in, well, one sort of religious thing for a slightly better one. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. All humans are under God's wrath already because we start life as sinners from birth. If you don't believe that, just come and do crash for a couple of hours. Eternal death is our destiny if nothing changes because those selfish attitudes that we start life with grow and grow and grow and we see the fruit in our families, in our own hearts and in our nations. Jesus Christ warns Nicodemus and everybody else, none of us will pass the interview to enter God's kingdom. Our past performance and our future prospects are just not good enough. We have too many sins in our past that must be punished. And we have sinful hearts that keep pumping out selfish, obscene things. But what we cannot do, Jesus promises and gives us a gift. New life through his spirit and forgiveness through his death. Just as we close, three very brief things. What does it mean for me as I look in? What does it mean for me as I carry on? And what does it mean for me as I reach out? What does it mean for me as I look in? Uh, People sometimes say to me, I could never be a Christian. I guess a number of us will have heard people say that. I could just never be a Christian. And Jesus would say, yep, you're absolutely right, my friend. But the heart of Christianity is not stuff we do to earn God's acceptance. The heart of Christianity is what God has done to provide us entry. I could never be a Christian actually is saying, God, Jesus' death wasn't enough. God, your Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to transform me. Anybody can become a Christian. I don't care who you are and what you've done and what your background is. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ tonight, your sins are forgiven completely. And you are a new creation. Put your trust in him tonight if you've not done so already. What does it mean as I look in? It means put your trust in him. What does it mean as you carry on, those of us who are already Christians? Never forget that forgiveness through Jesus' death and renewal by the Holy Spirit is not just the way into the Christian faith, it is also the way on. It's the way home. So when you mess up, when you feel guilty and ashamed, as we all do, look up. Look up and see Jesus Christ on the cross and know your sins are forgiven. Don't start by trusting in Jesus and then spend the rest of your time trying to earn your way. 
Maturity in the Christian life is not increasing independence where I need less forgiveness. That's not maturity. Maturity is increasing dependence on Jesus. As I'm more and more aware of how much I need to be forgiven for. And a daily delight that all of it's paid by him. And when I feel hopelessly trapped in a pattern of sin, know that you've been born again. Know that the power of the Holy Spirit, which has given you new birth, is at work day by day. And the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sinful desires. And one day you'll be free. And so today and tomorrow, get up and fight. Because his power is at work in you. And what does it mean as we reach out? Look, people in our culture are crying for the power to change and for an experience of real forgiveness. The endless books about self-esteem and the need to, uh, to accept yourself and love yourself, they show a society, a culture that's desperate for an experience of change and forgiveness. We know we're not what we should be. And we struggle with our inability to accept who we are. But the problem is that our souls need a, they need a weightier voice than just me saying, I know I'm good. They need something bigger. Something greater. And you and I are surrounded by thousands, millions of people whose most desperate and deep need is something that we have the answer to. Forgiveness that doesn't come from denying what you've done, but that comes from Jesus paying for it in full. And new birth that comes not from me learning new techniques, but from an external power, the power that created the universe. They can know almighty God's word, you're forgiven. And almighty God's power that you are new. Everyone needs to hear that message. Don't be intimidated by the Nicodemuses of our culture, the confident, knowledgeable, dismissive ones. Bring them to Jesus. He and he alone has the life and the forgiveness we all need. Enjoy it, believe it, live it, and share it. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that our entry into the kingdom of heaven is well beyond any of us. But we thank you that what we cannot do and do not deserve, Jesus has given. And so we pray that we would, we would be people who look to the death of your son and know our sins forgiven. And we would be people who, who cry out for the new birth that your spirit alone can bring and who rejoice to live in that strength. And we pray that we would go out tomorrow as forgiven new people and that we would go out committed and delighted that we have the message of life to share with this world. Amen.